Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know why I am. I am joined, as I am always joined, by the modest, motivated, and maverick Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? I will, I will take all three of those this week, Chris. I feel... Nice. I feel, I feel all three. How are you doing? So you, oh, I'm okay. You know, it's, been, um, it's not been the best week ever, but it's been not a bad week. I am muddling through, as they say. Mm-hmm. Doing, doing a lot of layout these days right now for, for certain things, and uh, trying to get some get things put together for the network since we just came up with a new marketing scheme and things like that. We're having a new apparel store in the not too distant future. I love that term marketing scheme. It's like you're trying to get away with something when you market. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, really, it's just a marketing plan and, uh, sure. and, you know, things like that. And we're even spending some money on marketing these days. It's weird. Ooh. I know. It's strange. This world that we live in. Anyways, uh, what's up with you? I have been doing a lot of a lot of writing and a lot of editing, a lot of everything across many different games, and that kind of spurred our uh, topic for the week, which is going to be simplicity and complexity in games in D and D specifically. I'm very excited to talk about that. It's a thing that I very much enjoy discussing. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we get to that, let's do a few announcements, or at least a few cool things are going on in the D and D world. Uh, alternatives to fighting, creative win conditions in D&D. So this is a D&D Beyond article. It's by James Hake. It's um, stressing the idea that initiative in combat should move story forward visually and via action and not be a place where story stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the better examples in there, or the, the, the largest example, I should say, is um, how he, James uses war as, a, as an example of this, because um, he wrote an article not too long before that about hobgoblins and their military tactics. Mm-hmm. And, like, if hobgoblins are mustering an army and you're fighting a whole army, then it's not like you can just stop them usually with one fight. That's not often how that goes. Right. So um, did you have some thought th- thoughts about that? Well, no. It, I mean, it's always been a fantasy trope of overwhelming odds, and you can't defeat every single enemy, right? You have to drop the one ring in the volcano. Um, or you mm-hmm. have to assassinate the general rather than trying to defeat every soldier in her army. So in that sense, it makes perfect, uh, makes perfect sense. But bringing it down to a how do I use it in my game level, go read the article. If you can't read the article, here's just some quick tips. Um, as James said, if you are having every single fight in your D&D game go to the bitter end and every last goblin is dead, that might bore your players after a while. So there are ways to run battles that aren't just fight to the death. One of the ways that you can make your game better is avoid those battles that don't add to the story. In third edition days, when we were running the Living Greyhawk campaign, we had a name for certain encounters. We called them OTEs, the Obligatory Thug Encounter. (laughs) What a great name. And it it was just a way of getting one more battle into the adventure because the adventure needed a certain amount of experience points. So on your way from you know the tavern to the den of thieves, you were ambushed by thieves. And generally, this didn't add anything to the story. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. Um, 
you're really just stopping the story to have an encounter, specifically a combat. So if you can avoid putting those in, you're already halfway to your goal of making combats more interesting and more story-driven. Whenever you create an encounter, you should always know the desire and goal of the enemy. Um, what is the enemy trying to achieve? If it's always just kill the characters, then you might want to think a little deeper about why you're putting that enemy into the into the uh, game to begin with. And if you do have alternative goals for your players other than just kill everything, make sure that the players understand what that is, whether you are presenting it to them out of the blue or it's something that they are coming up with as part of the story. So sometimes I've seen uh, DMs or writers put into an encounter, you know, rather than kill everybody, really what the players need to be doing here is um, moving the idol from one end of the room to the other. That's really it. If they can do that, they win. But the players don't know that. So Hmm. you have to find a way to make sure that they understand that. If they don't, all they're going to do is defeat all the enemies and then try to figure out what to do in the piece that follows. So don't be afraid to hit players with that clue by four of this is really what you need to do. The best kind of games are the ones where you present information in such a way that the players figure this out on their own rather than have you present it to them. But mm-hmm. it, there is nothing wrong with setting out those alternative goals clearly for the players. Oh, yeah, that, that works really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually really quite like this article a lot. I mean, it's something that I believe in quite strongly. So I would uh, suggest going and reading it. Yep. Especially as, as we try to get into more story-driven games, um, it's really important to think of all the things that he's talking about in this article. All right, so number two, moving on. Um, this is DM David, another article from DM David. Avoiding the awkward D&D moment when a priest, a wizard, and a dwarf enter a bar and nothing happens. Mm, great title. So, yeah, so he hits us with why it's awkward to start adventures with, like, this social mingling idea. Like, yeah, you're all hanging out. Why don't you talk to each other for a few minutes and talk to some of the NPCs? Um, Then he also evolves to talk about how pacing adventures is about providing goals for PCs and obstacles for those goals to be obtained. I wonder if there's a theme going on here with these articles, huh? Yeah, it sounds like uh, some. some, there was the same wellspring that was spawning all of these. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he mentioned that NPCs should be used as puzzles to be solved to discover information. And I, I thought that this whole article itself was a nice higher level thought process on uh, what we talked about when we discussed social interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in a tweet this morning, David actually mentioned an article that I wrote about one of the episodes in my Defiance and Flan adventure. Um, it's the one that's the shock at even feast where mm-hmm. uh the PCs are told right at the start of this little one-hour adventure, there's a magic item in here that's very dangerous. I don't know what it is. I don't know who has it, but you need to find it quickly. And that's what he's talking about with don't just let the players wander around looking for the adventure. Bring the adventure to them in, in a way that's quick, exciting, and gets them into the flow of the adventure as soon as possible. So in that, in the case of the episode that I wrote, they have a clear goal. They still have to interact with the uh, 
people in the tea house, uh, and they need to be sly about it. So they are doing the social interaction thing, but there's a goal. There's information that they're trying to pull out of each of the characters that they talk to. Nice. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Want to move on to the last one? Let's do it. Sure. The Lost Temple of the Shoudao. So this is from uh, Sly Flourish, Mike Shea. Uh, the reason I pulled this one is because it's a kind of a preview on how he applies his lazy dungeon master steps. And it also has a style similar to Fantastic Locations. So if you want to see how uh, Mike Shea does his thing, this is a really good article to check out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you have any notes? Well, I just I looked through it, and the first thing I thought was, yeah, this is a really good way if you are going to try to plan an adventure, you know, a, a session in about an hour, how to do it, which is 30 minutes of making notes, figuring out which paths the characters might take and what um, what steps you're going to put in their way, and then 30 minutes to build your uh, dungeon with uh, the, well, what, what do you call it, the, the Dwarven, Dwarven Forge. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so he spent as much time building the Dwarven Forge thing map as he did the the actual adventure, which I thought was great. Um and it oh, go ahead. So the thing I love about what Mike Shea does is it kind of goes along with a uh, concept that I like to bring to to game design and adventure prep, which is this idea of foundational prep. Mm-hmm. He's basically taking all the important pieces, the important elements that he wants to see or that this adventure can provide. And he has them in lists, so they're easy to access. And since he's written them down, he knows what they all are. And so there's like, one, there's a reinforcement for himself because he's written all this stuff down in lists. Two, it's all right there easily glanced at because he already knows what's kind of going on with it. And uh, and three, it allows him to improvise if things go not the way that he was expecting, which, come on now, things hardly ever go the way that we think they're going to. Precisely. So being able to improvise on this foundational prep is really really powerful as a tool for game masters and and it really what we're doing here is we're tying all three of these articles that we talked about together right it's mm-hmm. there are important things when you're running the game or writing an adventure if you can't yeah. do the full on write every single thing down understand what is important make those notes for yourself and everything else can follow from that so it's who are the npcs what do they want how are they stopping the characters from getting what the characters want? And to do that, you have to know what the characters want. And as long as you get all of those things down, everything else will flow naturally from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this stuff is just really strong game master advice. Yep. Or dungeon master advice. Yep. And it's funny because I, I realized as I was reading Mike's article that it's been a long time since I've just run a game from notes. I used to run games from notes in first edition and second edition all the time, but once third edition hit and I started, you know, writing uh, adventures for publication, I'm always running adventures that are published. And mm. the only time that I'm really running from notes is when I'm designing an adventure and I'm not sure if something's going to work, so I'll run a play test. I haven't written everything out yet, but I've done pretty much what Mike has done. You know, these are the monsters that I want. These are what they... Um, what the monsters want this is what the players are trying to achieve here's a rough layout of the room boom let's see what happens and then i base the final version of the encounter on what the players do 
Um, if the players turn always turn to the right and look in that direction of the room, um, something tells me that something I've said makes them do that. So that shows me that something that they're focusing on is important with what I said there. So I, you know, I give that more attention or if I want them to do something else, I realize I have to use different language when I'm describing it to mm -hmm. pull their attention in a different way. Real quick. It reminds me of uh, a story. I ran this one hour adventure in third edition. I must've run it 30 times. Um, and the players know that they're looking for this object in this little dungeon and they go in and there's three forks. They can go straight, right, or left. I, if I ran it 30 times, I swear 24 times people went left. Um, Why? I don't know. One, maybe four times people went right, and then only one party went straight, and that was because they cast Locate Object and realized that it was straight. And I don't know if it was something in the description, because uh, I would read box text to every group, and I don't mm -hmm. know if it was something in the description describing the way left pulled them there but it just shows that either a all gamers want to go left yeah or even the slightest clue the slightest inkling of a hint or you know something noticeable can pull people in a certain direction that's that's interesting yeah. in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm so curious as to the psychology and the cultural phenomena that's going there, going on there, right? Yeah, I wish I still had that adventure written down so I could go back and check it out. Um, okay, so those are our announcements or the things that we think you should be looking at for this week. Uh, let's talk about our main topic, which is design, complexity versus simplicity. Would you like to lead us in, Matt Wizard? I would love to. So the reason we're discussing this, at least the reason I want to discuss this, is because I've been doing a lot of different kinds of D&D work, especially class design and kind of more in-depth crunchy rules design, as well as working in other games. Um, I've been doing some editing with Fate Accelerated. I've been doing work with the 2D20 system that Star Wars Adventures uses. Um, uh, Star Trek. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. I always say Star Wars. Star Trek Adventures uses. Um, even thinking about the game that you ran at Origins, the, your own... Uh, your own sequence. Sequence, yeah, your own homebrew game. You know, I've been thinking about that tension between complexity and simplicity. Because regardless of the game we're talking about, whether it's a card game, a board game, a role-playing game, um, there's always that tension between complexity and simplicity. Um, because there's an audience that wants the simplest game possible. There's an audience that wants the most complex game possible. And if you're going to cater to both of those groups... You have to be able to um, be elegant with your design. Otherwise, you're going to be losing people on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned des uh, elegance. Mm -hmm. And you know, we often hear game designers or reviewers talk about elegance. I know I've talked about elegance. I think I've done episodes on elegance before. Mm -hmm. What do you think that means, well, elegance? Well, for me, elegance is just its simply that sweet spot in a game where you can have a great deal of complexity to appease that audience, but that complexity is so well hidden that people who enjoy simplicity don't even realize the complexity that's underlying it. How about you? I would, yeah, what, what would you say? Well, I mean, I agree with you, but I went and got the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition, Ooh. at least one of them. So here's the actual Merriam-Webster dictionary definition. In fact, this is definition D, not, not A, B, or C. This is the one that makes the most sense to me as far as what we're talking about. It is a scientific precision, neatness, and simplicity. There you go. 
So that's what uh, elegance actually means. Um, I'm I'm with you though for what elegance is. It is um, it is something about having this very simple set of of mechanisms that mm-hmm. create a much more a much deeper uh, level of play as mm-hmm. far as manipulating the, the mechanisms of play go. With role playing games, it gets a little bit different than like board and card games because role playing games are often focused on storytelling, whereas um, Board and card games and dice games are often focused on um, whatever the objective of said game is. Exactly, and that could be telling a story, but usually it's usually acquiring victory points or you know completing an objective, things like that. Yep, and and you hit the nail right on the head there. Complexity and simplicity in role playing games is complicated exactly as you said by that storytelling component, mm-hmm. uh, because if you want the final outcome of the game to be more about the story, then you even more so want to hide that complexity of the game to not let it interfere with the story. If you are playing it as a miniature skirmish game, then you know you can, you can bring that complexity to the surface. You don't have to worry as much about the story. Um, but I think we are at a time and a place in D&D's history where this is becoming more and more and more um, a topic that needs to be addressed and will be addressed as D&D evolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't mind, I would just, as an aside, like we talk about this complexity and, and we talk about storytelling and role-playing games, right? That is that is where you and me are at. But as far as like our, I think our personal, like what we're looking for in, in games and how games are being designed as far as role-playing games go. Mm-hmm. But... Like, we're playing Gangbusters on Misdirected Mark right now. Mm -hmm. That game is not... That game has everything set up to, like, have elements for playing that 1920s, 30s, um, either gangsters or cops or journalists type thing. Mm -hmm. But the gameplay itself, especially the combat side of it, is all broken down into the idea of one-second moments. Mm -hmm. So it's way more simulationist. I know simulationist is not the right word, but it's, it's trying to simulate how a gunfight would actually work, right? right? Um, and then the rest of the game is just pass-roll percentage die rolls, mm-hmm. pass-fail percentage die rolls. So, like, I don't know what that game is trying, except if, trying to do skill-wise as far as, like, it's not, like, modeling anything. It's just, like, either you pass or you fail. And then the um, social mechanics are a social rea- are, are, are a NPC reaction thing that you roll 2d10 that isn't percentage, you just add the numbers up and trying to roll as high as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird set of mechanisms that do sort of weird different things, but they're not like, I don't know if they were, I don't know if the designer was trying to do this directed storytelling thing, except with like how the classes work and, and, and such. Cause there's a whole bunch of subsystems in that game too, that we haven't like interacted with. So like, Complexity versus simplicity is 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 interesting to me be, as far as like the design goal of being able to tell these kinds of stories mm-hmm. because that doesn't seem like that's what it was like in the eighties or no. at least not they weren't thinking that way yet. Yeah, it's well, you know, we've talked about AD and D before, and you know, AD and D is not a an ele- not an elegant game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it yeah, is, but but BX is actually a much more elegant game. It, it absolutely. That's why I said you know AD and D. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I, I just I I didn't want us to get off. You're right. AD and D is a very complex, for almost seemingly no reason, right? Game, 
Well, but it, BX it, is not. It's it's because I I I have a feeling it's because as the game was being played, it was being played as a much more storytelling game, but they needed to create rules to to go under it. And what ended up happening was a lot of groups ended up ignoring most of the inelegant rules and just used the rules that added the most to the storytelling that they were trying to do. At least mm, that was okay, my, that, makes sense. that was my experience. So it was it was kind of a weird it was, it was a weird game in the sense that you know it didn't do perfectly what it was trying to do, but people used it as a tool to do that anyway. I can totally buy that. And, Absolutely, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and and we're getting to the point now where I think we're going to start seeing something very similar because of streaming. You know, I think we're seeing this concept of the game as, as entertainment for an audience. And while an audience can um, marvel and revel in the complexity of the game itself, I think more of the audience is in it for the story. You know, you hear most of the people talking about watching Critical Role or the C-Team or Dice Camera Action, you know, they're not talking about, ooh, did you see when he used that spell or when she pulled out this feat? You know, they're talking about the the impact of the characters and their interactions with each other and with the NPCs. So to gamify that is something that D&D still doesn't do to the extent that it could because its history is still in this wargamey uh, arena. It's true. And I think the reason for that is because people on a on a deeper level all across the world really and not just for role playing games we just as human beings identify with stories mm-hmm. right like we love a good story we learn through storytelling a lot of times like the the best education experiences and the best entertainment experiences are about us engaging with stories right so i mean that's that's why the audience more of the audience is in it for the story rather than for uh for the complexity of the game. Mm-hmm. And so when you begin to cater to an audience rather than playing a game with, with a strict set of rules, um, do you start, like we did in AD&D days, ignoring certain rules or changing certain rules to get to the outcome that you're desiring? And, and so all of this has to do with this complexity, simplicity, and this elegance question. Well, we can actually talk a little bit about once we get through this, like why D and D five E is doing such a good job of that. Because there are some reasons, in my opinion, that they are that it I, is. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some of the elements of fifth edition D and D, and that we can discuss on the this complexity simplicity scale. So what's mm-hmm. the first one? So I mean, the first thing that you have to you almost have to start with is the action economy in D uh-huh. because that sets the standard by which all the other rules are broken. Um, it's true. D and D being the an exception based game, you have to set the standard and then give everyone the exceptions. So the action economy, and of course we're talking about, you can move up to your speed, take an action, and then if something allows you, take a bonus action. And then and we you also- can and you can move any time right. and take that action at any time. Like so, it's it's really very flexible. Yep. And you also have reactions that you can take, uh, but those have to be triggered by by something. 
So the so that's the action economy. So if you were teaching a new player, you would say basically what we just said. Mm-hmm. And you want to keep it as simple as possible so they can understand the basics before they get into all the exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. So the what the action economy does is it restricts what can happen on a player's turn. It focuses down, it funnels down to these are the things that you can do on your turn and then um, we will move on from your turn and let everyone else play. And it's really simple. It's three things. Move, take an action, take a bonus action. You can almost have like chips or check boxes or whatever to be like, well, did you use all all your stuff? Yep. And so the first question that I had is when I when I saw the game taking away everything that has come before fourth edition, third edition, etc., was do we need bonus actions? Um, because, uh, yes. Okay. I, I yes. That that was that was just the the philosophical question that I asked myself uh, because bonus actions do add complexity to the game. They they are, do. They are um, they are something that you cannot take unless you are given that option through an item, through your own um, class, racial abilities, uh, or, you know, for, or some other thing that grants you that ability. Um, so I've, when, you know, for the first four years of playing 5th edition, I always had to tell players, no, you can't use your bonus action to do X, Y, Z, or Q. You can only do anything with the bonus action if it says on your character sheet, as a bonus action, you can blank. Or take an extra attack with your offhand weapon. Right. That's the only thing that anyone can do. But that still is kind of tied to an item, right? It's an it's item true. thing. If you have a light weapon in one hand and a light weapon in the other, then you can do it. Um, so even then, there is an item restriction to that. So the reason I think it's necessary is, one, it deepens play mm-hmm. um, for not a lot of cost. Because... In, in my opinion, and from everything I've studied and read, you can go up to usually a three things, like three 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 options or three things that you have to do on your turn before it gets cumbersome. Mm-hmm. And this is move, action, bonus action. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly legitimate to me. And, and I am going to push back, and I'm going to say I agree with you. I think that bonus actions do deepen the game. I think... In some cases, there might be too many bonus action choices at higher levels. It's interesting. I um, I think the classes... So, I don't... I, I think you could possibly be right. The reason I disagree um, is because of the other thing that goes on in this game, which we haven't gotten to yet, which is the spell slot system, mm-hmm. which actually I don't consider a simple system in this game. I actually think of it as being a very complex system. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But the the ca- the classes that have the most bonus actions usually don't have spell casting stuff. You you are absolutely on point there. Uh, and right as long as you don't multi class, it yeah it generally sorts itself out. Um, although I you know you I have played some higher level games where people were choosing between not not even spellcasters you know for the bonus action spells, but you know people were. Choose, either choosing between several bonus actions or using a bonus action and then forgetting it was a bonus action and trying to use one of their other Another one. four or five bonus actions. So I, I think it's I I think uh, the bonus action itself is very elegant and it does deepen the game without um, 
compl- you know, complicating it too much. Uh, I do think there are, in some cases, too many ways to get those bonus actions, and then they become cumbersome to sort through. That's I just, would that's just agree with thought. that, actually. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. Uh, the the next thing that we want to talk about is concentration spells. So, uh, based on previous editions of the game, the concentration idea is a lifesaver mm-hmm. because it doesn't allow for the, the insane stacking that can happen over two or three rounds once you get two or three spells that could have possibly given you bonuses beforehand. In fact, if you don't mind, I'm just going to move that on to the next thing, which is called advantage and disadvantage, mm-hmm. because those two things together have completely minimized the whole, well, how many pluses do I have question. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, you know, in third edition, or even fourth edition, I'm flanking, but I'm prone, but there's bless going, but my weapon is flaming. And, you know, and you would just go on and on and on with the stacking of bonuses and penalties. Um, and, you know, the advantage disadvantage simplifies that to the point of, you know, I will say simplifies it to the point of absurdity, but it simplifies it in such a way that it's easy to understand. It's either, you know, roll two dice, take the higher, roll two dice, take the lower, uh, depending on if you have both, they cancel out. I I and, love the simplicity. Yeah, go ahead. It, well, it does another thing, too. They tried to flatten the power curve mm-hmm. um, for, for that, that bell curve, everybody. Like, that's why proficiency bonuses only go up every so often. Because they're trying to keep uh, keep that that curve of where a D twenty plus modifier roll can go in in a certain space, so it solves that problem too. Yep. And one thing that I just this is has to do with advantage and disadvantage, but just a reminder: if you are using passive scores, passive perception, uh, passive insight, or other passive scores, if someone has advantage in that skill, add plus five to their passive score if they have disadvantage subtract five from that passive score there you go it's actually in the rules i didn't know that actually that's why you know what i knew that i just forgotten right it's been a while i knew it but i didn't know where it was in the rules and i just happened to come across it the other day as i was doing some research so i want to reiterate that for everyone um inspiration is the next thing that we want to talk about which it gives a simple mechanic uh, mechanical benefit for role playing so playing to your character gives you this resource that you can spend to get advantage or to cancel out disadvantage on a roll mm-hmm. you know and as we talk about story based games um you know inspiration is just the first taste in D&D of that mechanical acknowledgement of role playing mm-hmm. and I would not be surprised as the game evolves to see that gain a well first of all gain more complexity and but hopefully maintain some sort of simplicity so it can be important without slowing the game down. Adventures in Middle Earth. That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. You want to see how to evolve inspiration to the next stage of how it can be used in the game? Go look at that. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you want to give uh, a quick 
Sure. It allows you to do things like heroic feats. So you can spend your inspiration to do some crazy stuff. Um, it also lets you power your magic items because it's not a game where you get a lot of different magic items. You generally have the same magic item over the course of a long time. That that tends to open up powers too. But like spending inspiration is how you often use those abilities that go along with those magic items. Okay. So just those two things together make the game very different and make inspiration a much more useful and powerful uh, mechanism in play. Okay, now... Here's my other question about that, and uh, as it's used in, in that game. Do you get inspiration? Let me step back. Right now, inspiration, the giving of inspiration is kind of a nebulous thing. People who are familiar with fate generally only give it when people play to a flaw that, that hampers them in the story, but they get this reward that will save them later. Um, where some people just give inspiration if you bring uh, you know Cheetos to the game. Um, does that game restrict the giving of inspiration in any way? There is a series of guidelines for the different characters and, and the um, you know flaws and traits that they have okay. that that go along with that. So like uh, for instance, since we're talking about Lord of the Rings, like Aragon giving the speech before um, before the gates of uh, of Mordor, mm-hmm. like that would have given Aragon inspiration. Gotcha. So stuff like that, okay. like um, like Sam, Sam's uh, Sam saving Frodo and then saying like you know, whatever he says every time he says like he saves Frodo like of course I came for you this that or the other thing I, you know he's exhibiting his bravery right mm-hmm. so then he would get inspiration for that yep and just as a reminder as well uh, inspiration when it is used is supposed to give players advantage on you know a d twenty roll. Uh, I see a lot of people use it as a reroll. Yeah, um, that's not how the mechanic actually works, but yeah. that's how everybody uses it. So if you know if you're if you you can obviously play in the game any way you want, and if your players are having fun, that's great. Um, but just in terms of how it is meant to be used in the game, there's a huge difference between using it before the roll or using it after the roll. Yeah, gigantic. So there you go. I, I feel like the the probably the best place if you're going to use it. Um, as written, is like, oh, you have disadvantage. Hell no, I don't. Here's my inspiration. Yep. <laughs> uh, let's talk about reactions. So I always forget about reactions. That's like a me thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't used to because I used to play fighters all the time in 4th edition D&D. And guess what? They get all kinds of reactions. It's true. But, you know, but in this game, for some reason, I just constantly forget that characters and monsters and what's it called have reactions. Mm-hmm. Now, on the complexity-simplicity scale, um, what do you think of reactions? Uh, it's a simple concept, but it's hard to utilize in play because it's something you have to remember when it's not your turn. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, yeah. So so fourth edition, a lot of what took the most time was everyone had an ability that was triggered off something else. Uh-huh. So So the monster would shift five feet, and all of a sudden every character got to do something. Yep. And so that added a lot of complexity to the game. Uh, obviously, it's been restricted more uh, in 5th edition in, in those terms, but there are still things that can trigger reactions. And as Chris said, sometimes it's hard to remember um, all of those things and, and when to use them. So let's talk about the modularity of play real quick. Sure. So this is why the game... And we'll talk about some other things too, but this is why I think that the game can can be simple 
but then has a bunch of complexity that you can add on to it. Like there's a madness set of rules that you can apply to this thing. Uh, the downtime rules are a different system that you can apply to this game that you don't necessarily have to use. Feats themselves are actually a subsystem that you add on to the game. A lot of people right. use them because AL has it built into their campaign, mm -hmm. but that is not a core part of what is initially thought of to be part of the game. So it's interesting that the game actually did come out being modular, mm -hmm. and I like it a lot. Uh, but that is that 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 right there. The design of the game is actually built on a scale where it starts out simple and then gets more complex, mm -hmm. just like how. Um, the game starts off simple at level-wise and gets more complex as you go along. Yep. I can't really add much to that. I completely agree. All right. Let's talk about the, the simple core of the game. So the, the stat modifier plus proficiency bonus plus a d20 roll. That, that is the simplest structure ever in this game, and it's based off of six stats. And you can almost play the whole game without anything else as zero-level characters if you wanted to, just, just, just with that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some damage rolls and whatnot. But that'll, that'll cover everything. You don't even need skills. Right, like you can just play the game. Right, if you can get that point across to new players, it helps set a base for everything that follows. Mm -hmm. It is the simplest of the structures in Fifth Edition D and D, mm -hmm. and what, in my opinion, makes the game as simple as it is on on that scale, and and is appealing to a lot of people because it's an easy concept to to grasp. Mm -hmm. um, to to tack onto that. There's three different types of D20 rolls, which is actually kind of a problem. Like, that is a more complex thing, because now you have three things that are similar, but they function slightly differently. Mm -hmm. That's actually hard to wrap your head around a lot of times. So that actually puts it up higher on the complexity scale, and that's actually part of the, the base core of the game. So you have this really simple D20 roll system, but then you have three different types of D20 rolls, which are more complex. Um, that can be frustrating as a watcher of a stream to be like, what are they talking about? Right. Until and, you kind of get in your head. Yeah, and and it can be frustrating as a participant in the game um, if the DM doesn't suss out quickly what kind of role should apply to what. Um, so, you know, saving throws should... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> saving throws should be the things that take you out of danger. Right? Mm -hmm. Attack roll should be you are doing something that requires enough skill uh, in order to physically damage someone. And then skill checks should be anything that's not those two. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it comes with some complexity is because those are considered like key words mm -hmm. in the game and they have rules that modify them from different things. So there are some thing there are some abilities out there like this will modify your skill check, right? Double your proficiency bonus. But it doesn't modify your saving throw or your attack roll. Right. And there's some things that just modify the attack roll but not the other two. Yep. So and another thing that's confusing is although I don't think the core books do this, just in general usage there's talk of skill checks and ability checks and really they're the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's really an ability check. But if you have a skill that applies, then you can add whatever proficiency if you're proficient with that skill. Yeah, I think the actual word is ability check. Right. They don't they don't say skill check. I'm actually incorrect here. I'm gonna go change that in the notes. No, but it's it just it just shows that it is it is a thing and most of it is a holdover, I believe, from previous editions, where they were called skill checks and skills could do very specific things. The skills now as they're described, are much more general 
Mm-hmm. And it really is up to the DM and the player to decide between them, you know, does this skill apply to this ability check that I'm making? Um, and people also, while it's it's not unusual to tie a skill to an ability, they don't have to be used for the same thing. So you could make a, you know, an intimidation strength check because you are doing something physical to intimidate or you could make, you know, a stealth intelligence check if you are hiding um, by blending into a group of people rather than using dexterity to hide behind a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that I, yes, all that. I have nothing else to say on that. Do you have anything else to say on that? Well, the only thing that goes back to then is the complexity simplicity question. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is it, is it easier and more understandable to tie a skill to a, an ability or is that something that people get confused with? because they've been playing previous editions and that's always the way it's been done. But new players can easily grok the concept of, okay, this skill is separate from an ability and I will use it when, or I will ask to use it when it's appropriate, regardless of the ability being used. Uh, I think as a game on its own, it's very simple because it's just an add on like, all right, you're going to use this, this ability. Does do you have a skill that applies? Okay. Add the proficiency bonus or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's a little bit more complex. And not complex. It's not really complex. It's confusing, right? Like, because mm-hmm. you're having different rule sets in your head for, right. for people who've played previous versions of games. So mm-hmm. I don't think that's actually a, a complexity simplicity issue as much as it's a, for, for those folks, is it's a, like, uh, is a, it's a having too many different rule sets in their head issue, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's completely understandable. It's not like I've never done that. <laughs> well, I've done it too. So, I mean, yeah. I get it. Like um, game. <laughs> the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, for me anyway, on the compl- compl- uh, complexity simplicity scale is the spell slot system. Mm-hmm. So the spell slot system is the other giant part of this game. There are some other subsystems for different classes, like the fighter that has the uh, expertise dice and the bard that has the inspiration dice. But um, And even barbarians who have, like, they can rage X amount of times per day. But really, the spell slot system is a giant system in this game and it's very complex because it's a resource management game that you're playing and a lot of the different casters have different implementations of the spell slot system mm-hmm. and how they can sometimes manipulate that because sorcerers do not function the same way as wizards do not function exactly the same way as warlocks true and bards for that matter i mean when I talk about complexity man bards have a little bit of fighter a little bit of little, little bit of wizard you know yep um even clerics don't function the same as these other ones well, they function sort of like the sorcerer, I suppose, but they have access to all the spells, right? So, right, right, yeah. There's, there's a lot of complexity. Th- there is, like as you're talking about, there's the spell slot system with what you can cast. Then there's the system of what spells you can choose from to cast. And oh, like, like you say, you know, the wizards have to cho- go from their spell book, whereas clerics uh, can choose whatever they want at the beginning of the day from the complete list, and you mm-hmm. know, it, it's. It is complex in several different ways. Uh, even paladins, because paladins can power their um, yep. their smites, smites with spell slots. Yep. So, I mean, there's like a lot of different ways that they've impl- implemented the spell slot system, which means that is probably the most complex part of the game, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, complexity, simplicity-wise, does this add 
to the storytelling, you know, the story that's unfolding in any way. And if the game evolves, can it be made to fit better into a storytelling mode of play? Um, that's a really huge question. I know. That's uh, why I asked with, with 30 seconds left in the podcast. My, um, <laughs> my initial feel on that is it's not the preferred way that I would design a thing, but mm-hmm. I understand why they did it that way. Right. Every one of these classes brings its own flavor then through the, through the implementation of their power. Right. Right. Um, paladins are supposed to be the holy arm of their god. So channeling their energy to smite evil or smite whatever mm-hmm. feels right. Mm-hmm. Right? Like from a from a theme point of view and a storytelling point of view, that feels correct. Right. Um clerics being able to commune with their gods for the power that they need for what they believe is for the day, that makes sense too. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it, it feels right from from a storytelling point of view, but my now now I'm getting into my head about this because I'm like, is it really right from a storytelling point of view, or have I just been trained because of how many years that, that these rules have been like this to expect it to feel that way? Right, right, right. And, and and yeah, and that was my next point is if they didn't do the story or the spell slot system this way, then there would have been a revolt from the players because there probably would have been. Yeah, you know, the players wanted um, to go back to that first and second edition did. feel. And, and I mean, look at fourth yeah. edition, right? Right. <laughs> For people didn't like that. Yeah. I mean, not not everybody. I won't say everybody didn't like that. A lot of people didn't like that, though. Right. So you know that also comes into play when you talk about game design, which is really what we're, we're talking about here is just the challenges of designing a game to meet the different needs and wants of the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you mind? Do you mind if I keep going on for a second about about spellcasters? Do it, sir. So uh, sorcerers and wizards, let's talk about those two real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, wizards are, are academics at heart. Like, that's what they do. They study spell books. They, they, they practice the, the art form. And that is very much revealed that by the fact that you can't cast a spell that you don't have in your spell book, right? Mm-hmm. And your mind can only hold on to so much magic. And using the Vancian version of spell casting, those spells are wiped from your mind when you cast them because of the power flowing out of your head. I mean, it makes flavorful sense for mm-hmm. that kind of kind of magic. In fact, I mean, Vancian spellcasting has pretty well modeled that whole Vancian thing for very a very long time. Right. Like that that is right in line with how that works. Um sorcerers, like they have innate power, so they're much like the clerics, it's like they don't get to pick from everything. They just know a few things because those are the spells that they just have at their disposal and they have basically their spell slots are more like power points. Mm-hmm. And then they have also points that they can use to like you know use the meta magic feats that they have because they can modify their magic because they have this innate ability and of course whatever their innate ability is they have um you know something else that goes along with that so it's like it's dragon magic or chaos magic or whatever it is mm-hmm. yeah and then warlocks they have a patron right so they're they're actually just pulling power from a from a power source right and then of they course battery. if you're a high elf you can cast certain cantrips uh, at will or innately I should say not at will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a gnome, you can do certain spells because you're a gnome. So yeah. there's there's and, that. Yeah, and that that's um that's all flavorful, right? Like that's mm-hmm. all that's all like these are magical races. Well it makes sense that they have magical spells at their disposal. Right. And we didn't even get into multi classing, which oh, is a whole I, other complexity that's, issue. 
Yeah, that if there's one thing I can't stand in the game, it's that because that kind of messes everything up. Right, but if you ask certain you know players, that's the whole point of the game. Yeah, and is, that's fine, right? Like yeah. from from a design from a designer point of view, yes. multi-classing is like a nightmare. Like, how do you design for the multi-class? Mm-hmm. Right, like it's almost impossible. Right, and I've seen it. Like, there's just so many from from running enough Adventures League stuff at the higher level, higher tier level stuff. Man, does it get really messy for 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 adventure designers to try to have to deal with that. So we don't. We just think, well, if you're multi-classing with all these crazy things. I'm not really looking to design for you. Sorry, that's not, in my opinion, how the game was designed. I'm designing for a, a p- balanced party of whatever the APL is. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, just just one more thing to think about when you put that game design hat on. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about tier of play. Let's do it. Last thing. Yep. So how does level of play, tier 1, 2, 3, or 4, change in terms of simplicity complexity? Go ahead. Well, we talked about the game being exception-based. So you've set your base... And then every rule that's put on is an exception to those rules. And, of course, the higher you go in level, the, the higher you go in tier, the more exceptions to the rules you get your hands on. Um, now, spells are basically the massive exception to the rules, right? It's true. The spells are what um, lets you do pretty much whatever you want outside of the, the base rules. Um, so... At first level, you can generally have spells that let you do minor things. And then the higher you go in level until you get up to Wish and, and spells of, of that nature, you are massively changing the way that the rules work. So, um, it in effect, each tier is its own game. That's true. It It's the same game name, D&D. But the way that it plays, the the things that you have to think about as an adventure designer or as the DM change as you go up into those tiers. So the difference between a tier one and a tier four play session or adventure is drastic. Uh, you, yes. You cannot write a tier four adventure in the same way that you would write any of the other tiers. Um it's it's practically impossible. You have to start thinking on a narrative level, even, that's completely different. Challenges have to be set before the players and the characters um, that are not even conceivable at the other tiers. Yet scale is very different. The scale of what is going on is very different. So having a a dungeon mm-hmm. kind of crawl adventure in tier four, that dungeon is not going to be the same kind of dungeon at all as in tier one. Like the frame is sort of the same, but the exploration of the space and the space that you're going to be exploring is very different. Like on tier four, you're probably in the outer plane somewhere exploring a, you know, black box that when you're inside of it, uh, you can't really map it out or use locate object because every space and there's an extra dimensional space to a slightly different dimension right, right. like yep <laughs> but but you also you know the, the 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 first step is exactly what you what you say it's you have to take into account everything they can do and somehow negate that the, the next step is to leave them all their options but to create the story in such a way that that they need to use those resources to continue. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Right. Like, you don't, you can't give them a free pass, right? Like, they need to, they need to spend their resources to accomplish their goals, and it can't be just I spend my one resource to accomplish the entire goal. Right. Um, so, so you need to design the adventure in such a way that everything is a challenge, um, and think about what they can do and focus that. You almost have to become less linear in the adventure but more linear in your thinking yeah it's actually pretty accurate uh, uh yeah it's just it's, yeah it's all just different we've actually talked about low and high tier play before right like yeah. we've had episodes on that sure um so the in, in my opinion the complexity just skyrockets as yep. you get up because there's so many more rules packages because every spell is basically a rules package mm-hmm. that you're going that, that can be deployed and when you are in those higher tiers you and you don't know who you're designing for then any combination of rules packets can show up at your table. So almost anything goes. So it's almost, you can almost not, it's almost like you can't really think about what can be done. You're just looking at maybe like the most common things that players often will do or the most common spells that get used to, to deal with issues and be like, well, I know that these are probably the, the 10 things that could, could, that are most likely to happen. How do I deal with that stuff? And mm-hmm. then anybody else who thinks around that is just being clever. Uh, that that's kind of my opinion on the simplicity complexity thing and how to deal with that anyway, as far as a design point of view goes. I yeah, I agree. Um, from players out there, um, you could just be nice. You don't have to just like go there and just like be like, I'm gonna blow up your stuff. I mean, you can, but that's just like as long as everybody's having fun doing it, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a uh, that's high high level and low level play once again. Like man, it's just so different. Yep. <laughs> And again, when you think about it, go back to complexity and simplicity. Um, is is high tier play so complex that it doesn't get the attention that it deserves? And is there a way in future iterations of the game that you can still have high tier play, high level play, while cutting down on the complexity enough to make it more accessible? Maybe, yeah. It's just it's Probably. just a thought. <laughs> not not expecting an answer, but yeah, you know, it's just it's it's something that I have been thinking about as I look at other game systems and look at the different versions of D anD. d Well, I'll tell you, we're going to get a good look at that kind of stuff in the coming uh, months because we're about to get an adventure book that goes to level twenty. This is true. So in November, I think, right? So in November, we'll yep. uh, be able to start deciding for ourselves based on the people who make the game, if if that Tier 4 play is a thing that can be really... If it's going to change or how complex it needs to be to make it work. Yep. Uh, you good? I'm good, sir. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Let's do some Patreon shout-outs. Uh, John C. LeMay, the guard at the end of the world. John Carney, the court necromancer, because he goes by Evil John. Robert Dorgan, one of our longest-time patrons, the Dragon Lord of Down with D&D. He asked for that title. He's more than welcome to it. Uh, Jared Rasher, the scribe of MMP. Christopher Gray, the spy master of MMP. Mike Dinos, the inquisitor of Mark. Jesse Edmond, the royal doctor. Donnie Harville, the lord of the slack room. Brian Kurtz, the royal doctor of physic. Andy Olson, the duke of dimensional paradox. Merrick Blackman, the royal D&D reviewer. Rob Ebersano, the gauntlet of the queen. GM Gerrymander, the lord of the after show. Toby Sennett, the baron of Britannia. Kevin Lovecraft, the royal beard. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. 
Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes where we spell most of the words correctly. And also an invite to the Slack room for life. Mm, yes. Where you can just talk to us. People have been talking in there all day today. It's been kind of rather uh, pleasant to watch. Um, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review, or any kind of review, really. Yes, those podcast reviews on Apple Podcast help us, because many podcatchers use Apple Podcast as their way to rate and rank shows. And we got a new five-star review up just the other day, so thank Woo. you so much for that. Very cool. Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the Down With D&D G Plus community. How about you, Chris? Uh, you can hit me and the network up at, at MisdirectedMark on Twitter or me personally at the Light 101 Or you could really just go to the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one. Um, any nominated Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Hobbs gets together with various friends from the OSR where they talk about the games they play, a little about themselves, some OSR-related topic, and sometimes the state of the OSR, where Hobbs puts down his Mr. Rogers persona and gets all opinionated. Get old school with Hobbs and friends of the OSR. Now, did you say any nominated Hobbs and yeah. friends of the OSR? Any nominated. So if you wouldn't mind going over to the uh, the Any Voting page and vote for Hobbs and friends of the OSR, uh, us folks over here at Misdirected Mark Productions would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. And did you know that Down With D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs? I feel like I did know that. But um, with that being said, Sean, what are we going to do now? We are going to kill some monsters. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Get down with D&D. Down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D?